Let us pray. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we rejoice in coming into your presence and indeed be gathered here tonight to worship you through the person and work of the risen high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the truth of your word and this help and assistance and the power of the Holy Spirit whom you lavishly given to this church. And we pray that we will love to abide in Christ, the incarnate word, um, made to suffer for our sins, made to die for our sin, to atone for our sin, but also was raised to glory into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, where there is pleasure forevermore. And in Christ, may we find pleasure in him and his word, so that we may rejoice in union and communion with our triune God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good evening. This morning we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11. In it we saw the destructive effect of sin. And while it looks like David got away with adultery and murder in that first part, tonight we see the second part of the story, how God convicts David of sin and then graciously redeems him. So now let us turn to God's word. We will be reading 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. If you're using a pill Bible, you can find it on page 263. Now hear the reading of God's holy and infallible word. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But a poor man had nothing but one little eunuch lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son." David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do to himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but while the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray for his blessing. Our great Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you will illuminate our minds and enliven our hearts so that we may know your word, we may know the wonderful grace of, redeeming grace of Christ, and that we may have hope in him and we will strive to obey him. In his name we pray, amen. If you are riding on a train and it's going full speed down the cliff and you do not know it, what are you going to do? Business as usual, I guess. You would eat, drink, be merry, check your email, flip on your phone, and do not know the danger that is facing you. But when a train is going down the cliff, then you know you are in danger. You may cry out for help. But who is going to help you? Even worse, when a train crashed into the bottom of the cliff, and it shattered, and your body shattered along with the train, what are you going to do? Are you going to rise from the dead, from your broken body and the dead, and walk back to safety? Who can you call to help you? Who can tr- you trust? This passage came, uh, from, came right after the passage we read this morning. We saw how David was so totally broken by his sinful fall, and yet he did not know it. But we see here how God, by breaking him, will restore him to his throne and kingdom. And indeed, 
will bring out a better king than David himself, the true redeemer, the redeeming king and savior, Jesus Christ. So with that, we will look at this passage in four points. Verses 1 to 12 gives us the confrontation with David. Verse 13, the confession of David. Verses 14 to 23, the consequences of David's sin. And verses 24 to 25, the coronation of the true king. So first, God's confrontation with David. Now this morning we left with a uh, cliffhanger. God considers David's action evil in his sight. He's not pleased. He's ready to uncover what David has hidden so expertly in order to give him what his sins deserve. And this chapter likely begins a year after David's adultery and murder because his son with Bathsheba is born. God's confrontation with David, we see it begins in this chapter when God sent his prophet Nathan to David. This is the second time Nathan spoke to David. The first time was when God sent him to make a covenant with David back in chapter 7 to bless him and that he will have a descendant to rule over his kingdom and God's kingdom forever. What a great and wonderful blessing um, that out of grace that God has promised David. Now, in a 180-degree turn, Nathan is going to proclaim divine judgment over David. Notice that Nathan doesn't bring fire and brimstone right away. He tells David a story, or a parable, you may say. Briefly, there are two men, a rich man with many livestock, and a poor man who has one little eel lamb that he loved, that he cares for, like it's part of his family. When a traveler comes, the rich man doesn't slaughter his own sheep for his guests, but he takes and slaughters the poor man's uh, lamb and makes a feast. So without knowing the end of the story, David interrupts. He bursts out in anger before Nathan with indignation, and he judges this rich man. He deserves to die because he has done these wicked things. He is greedy, unrighteous, and he has no mercy. Guess what? He's right. And guess what? Nathan answered David, You are that man. While David's sins, they are all masked, hidden away by him putting out a good face before man. He cannot hide before God. God unmasks his sin. David is the one who truly is greedy, unrighteous, and have no mercy. Nathan's story stirs up David's sense of righteousness by condemning this man in the story. But the purpose of the story is that David should be self-condemned. Do you see how wise and compassionate God is to David? Unlike Saul, David's predecessor, God doesn't pass a final judgment and takes away David's kingship. Even though David sinned, is arguably worse than Saul. But God, with holy anger and impending judgment, comes to David gently with a story. Truth that first convicts David without destroying him. So we see the compassionate heart of God that is also 
righteous and holy. But we also see how wise God is here. With a mere story, David is self-condemned. He had nowhere to run. How wise that God speaks the truth in love. Also, in this, confronta- in this confrontation, we see here God recites his goodness and blessing to David in verses 7 to 8. Those are almost the exact wording of God's covenant with David that we mentioned about in, back in chapter 7. This is to show David and to show us that God's character doesn't change. His promises remain firm. He is faithful to himself. It is David who breaks faith with God and fully deserves divine punishment. And what is this punishment? Well, it must fit the crime because God is righteous. We see here, God pronounces that because David kills Uriah with a sword, the sword will never depart from David's house. Now, God says something that cuts to the heart of the matter here. Uriah was killed by the Ammonites in a war. And David himself says that it's not unusual that, there are, that there's casualty of a war. But God sees through all the smoke that David blows and rightly calls David himself the murderer. He is the culprit. Sin cannot be concealed before the all-seeing and almighty and powerful God. And also, we see God says that David here despised God and did all these evil things. And this is the root of all sins, the turning away and even despising God. You see, there are only two ways to live. To live according to God's will and his word, or to live according to the will of the sinful self, following our sinful flesh, lusting in our own sinful hearts, or scheming with our sinful mind and doing sinful deeds, everything David did, and that we often succumb to. Living according to one's own pleasure may not appear to be a big deal, even among Christians, because we tend to believe we are pretty good people, at least better than those other guys out there in the world. But neglecting God's word is great wickedness. It's no less than despising God. And it's really the beginning of one's uh, crumbling into a sinful lifestyle. You know what? When David first looked at Bathsheba, he should have turned around. Stop, pause, remember God's word. Or as we said, sing to himself, oh, be careful little eyes what you see, and not look anymore. That might have saved him from his sinful acts. But David forgot about God. He plunged into sins. And here, God doles out his righteous punishment over David. And years later, the Bible tells us that David's son Amnon will commit incest and his brother Absalom will kill him. While they are totally responsible for their despicable acts, these acts are also just punishment due to David's sin. And after that, David's beloved son Absalom will will forcibly take David's throne and lay with all David's concubines in the sight of all Israel fulfilling God's prophecy or punishment here. And Absalom himself would die by the hand of David's general, Joab. 
Now these are very harsh punishments. Gross sexual immorality and bloodshed in the family. These are not just an eye for an eye, but David deserved them. In fact, he deserved to be stoned when he had the affair with Bathsheba. Not to mention that he should die for murdering Uriah. We see here that God is just, but he does not give David what his sins deserve. So we already see a prelude, a little spark, a little glimpse of God's grace and compassion here. We see that although God's punishment or chastisement may appear severe, it is tempered and seasoned with mercy and with grace. So we learn from this confrontation that God is wise, that God is righteous, and God is merciful. His truth convicts, his righteousness punishes, but his mercy leaves room for restoration. And this confrontation leads to our second point, David's confession to God. Faced with God's righteous judgment, David has two choices. He can either fall farther away from God by refusing to listen to the prophet Nathan, double down on what he does and live whatever way he sees fit, just like his predecessor, Saul. Or he can turn to God and ask for forgiveness mercy and grace of redemption. David wisely and humbly chooses the path of repentance. His confess, his, he confesses in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Simple and straightforward. This morning, we sang Psalm 51, which is a longer version of David's repentance detailing the historical background here and revealing to us more of David's heart and God's grace. Here, David's confession, even though it's very short, simple, but it is straight to the point. We mentioned this morning that the name of the Lord is not mentioned until the end of chapter 11. The title Lord or Yahweh is God's covenantal or personal name for his people highlighting the covenantal relationship between God and the people he promised to love. The absence of the name God or the Lord means that God is nowhere near David's heart when he commits all those sinful acts. At this confrontation, David is convicted that he has done those despicable acts, not only against the victims, Bathsheba and Uriah, but even more so, against the holy and righteous God, who is his Lord and God. How can he do something so offensive against his Lord and God? We see here, David does not vow to repay his crimes. How can he? He simply acknowledges his sin against God, throw himself in God's, cast himself upon the mercy of God. We live in a time when people do something wrong and they will deny, blame shift, and outright lie about their sins. This passage tells us that sins cannot be hidden. It can only be remedied and redeemed by confessing them to God. And when you come to realize 
that you have not just made a little mistake when you sin against God. Maybe a white light here, maybe an image you watch, you see there. But do you know we, you and I, have gravely sinned against God by our so-called little sins, even noble sins. When you you and I see that we cannot make things right ourselves, we are broken in the bottom of a pit. When our burden of sin is so heavy, we can bear it no more. This passage, this confession invites us to throw ourselves wholly, commit ourselves to the Lord. His truth may break us in order that his grace may heal us. Confession or repentance is a channel from which God's mercy and grace flow to us. And this is exactly what happens, and it happens right away. We see here, Nathan says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Notice that David's confession doesn't cause God to forgive. Look at verse 13 carefully. The Lord, the Lord also has put away your sin. This little word also suggests that this pronouncement of forgiveness is given in conjunction with God's judgment against David. The covenant Lord who judges rightly also offers forgiveness of sin. God's saving grace does not depend on man. Indeed, God seeks David's repentance. And David does indeed repent by turning away from himself and turning wholly to God. Well, some people assume that God is automatically merciful and forgiving, and they hardly confess their sins anymore. After doing something heinous by sinning against God, they may just say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm already forgiven, and I should be a-okay. Friends, minimizing And trivializing our sins is adding sin upon sins. When we humble ourselves before God, when we turn to him with our whole heart in repentance, we show that God's word and spirit are working in us to convince, to convict, and to bring us back to God. We cannot find forgiveness and restoration on our own or through our own make-believe. And brushing aside our sins only makes us more guilty and corrupt. But thanks be to God, he intervenes to restore us to himself because he is a faithful God, faithful to his promise of redemption. We see here that David confesses his sin to God and God forgives his sin and restores the broken relationship. Still, God disciplines David and us with the corrupting consequences of our sins. But the good news is that we do not get what we deserve. Because we know that Christians are not punished by a holy and angry judge. Rather, consequences of sins are instruments a loving loving Heavenly Father uses to train and to discipline His erring children for our good and for His glory. And this brings us to the third point of our passage, the consequences of David's sins. We see here, although God forgives David's sins, there will be bloodshed in David's family, just as God said. 
But our immediate focus here in this moment is on this illegitimate child of David. He must die. Verse 15 even says that God afflicted the child of David and Bathsheba. It's interesting to talk about Bathsheba as Uriah's wife first, highlighting how this uh, child was conceived illegitimately through the sin of David. Still, you may ask, what has this innocent baby done to deserve this? Is it fair for him to die for his father's sin? Now, this is a complicated and difficult question. We can only consider two things briefly at this point. First, every sin has consequence, but not always in a proportional manner, according to our thinking or our judgment. After all, the ways and thoughts of God is higher than our ways and our thoughts. But even common sense tells us that the sin of a father may be so heinous, it may affect the life of his family in a deeply profound way that is not the fault of his own. Once again, to tell us it's better not sin because there may be unintended consequences that will affect many others. Second, under the Mosaic law, a sinner may be redeemed by sacrifice of a blameless life of a spotless animal. Now, can it be so that this quote-unquote life for a life here we see symbolizes how David's sin and guilt can only be atoned by an innocent life. Even more so, could it be that David's baby, conceived and born in sin, may anticipate his perfect and sinless great-grandson, Jesus Christ our Lord, grow up and become the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Once again, it's better not to sin so that we don't suffer its corrupting and crippling consequences. But here we are reminded that as long as we live in this world, things are not always what we think or want to be. Still, God is sovereign. He is all wise, good, and gracious. And even though we deserve much worse for our sin, if not for the forgiveness and intervention of God, we will not be able to stand and live before him. So even with this uh, difficult uh, fate of his child, David prostrates himself before God to plead for him. David fasts and prays, seeking God's mercy and healing for this child. After seven days, the child died. It is not worthy that the child dies before he can be circumcised. Some commentators think that the child was therefore cut off from God's covenant as a divine punishment of David's breaking faith with God. Now, this is certainly not the case because David is, as we saw already, is forgiven. And also notice that David says in verse 23 that he will go to that child, but the child will not return back to him. Now, this appears... Not that it is very likely that David is not talking about the grave, but the hope that is beyond the grave, the hope that a child is in paradise. David, with his own resurrection hope, 
inspired by God's Spirit, is confident that he too will be reunited not only with his child, but with God. Not only this shows us the great mercy of God, but also the faith in God is our central and ultimate hope. The glory of resurrection and life forever with God is not some wishful thinking, but a hope firmly grounded on God's promise. And this promise, going back in uh, chapter 7, the covenant with David, has been actualized in the death, in the birth, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this hope triumphs over all consequences of our sin because we have redemption freely offered by Christ our Lord. And he is our risen king priest who guides us through this valley of shadow of death towards the green pasture of our heavenly home, a home that he is preparing for us. And this brings us to our last point. In verses 24 to 25, speaks to us the coronation of the true king. After the death of his child, David goes to comfort Bathsheba. Notice verse 24. Now Bathsheba, his wife. She must be grieving deeply because she loses both her husband Uriah and her child within a year. Now David is able to comfort her because he himself has received the comfort of God's forgiveness and fatherly discipline. And afterward, God blesses them with his son, Solomon. His name is close to the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace or wholeness. Besides, the Lord loves this child. And he is given he, he gives the nickname to this child, Jedidiah, which means loved by God. This name in Hebrew shares the same letters with the name David, really telling us that Solomon was, the, was beloved for the sake of David. Another, another piece of evidence that shows us David is fully forgiven, restored, and embraced by God the Lord. And out of many sons of David, this one, Solomon, Jedidiah, will be chosen to ascend to his father's throne. Under Solomon's reign, Israel has no war. We get further confirmation that God has redeemed and restored David in peace and in love. So we see David's confession leads to the birth and coronation of the next king, Solomon. He is a man of peace a man of wisdom, and a man of wealth. David grieved, David's grievous sins by no means annul God's faithfulness to his promise. Indeed, God raises up from David's loin a beloved and wise king. But sadly, the Bible tells us Solomon also commits terrible sins. He takes many wives and concubines and even sacrifices to foreign gods. For this reason, God divides his kingdom into two. There will be no lasting peace between Israel and Judah, and none of Israel's kings measure up to David. And very few of Judah's kings will even walk after David's way. 
So we see this passage does not end with the coronation of Solomon. David and Solomon are among the best of men, along with Moses, Abraham, and others. But they all fell short of God's glory, some harder than others. According to the covenant of to God's promise and covenant to David, none of his descendants really and truly deserved to be king, to lead God's kingdom, to reign over God's kingdom forever. So we see the only king who is truly wise, truly righteous, and one truly beloved of God and have the love of fellow man is the man after God's own heart, Jesus Christ our Lord. The second person of the Trinity, being the sovereign king of all creation, he would become a man, even a son of David's line, to save us from our sins. He perfectly obeyed God's heart, God's law in his heart, in his mind, and in all that he has done. And he offered himself on a cross, fully satisfied God's wrath for sinners. Yes, Christ bore in his body and soul the sins of David, the sins of Solomon, your sins and my sins. And for this reason, we can be forgiven by God. Redeemed by God, restored to Him, and even that He has taken us as His children. And by His resurrection, Christ was crowned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He now reigns over the kingdom of God with power, wisdom, righteousness, and mercy. Christ our King intervenes in our lives through His Spirit and the word, and he reigns and rule in his church, working all things for our good to conform us to himself. So people of God, rejoice in having Jesus as your king when you trust in him, when you turn to him in repentance for your sins. Cling to him in your highs and in your lows. Turn to him in faith and repentance. Take heed to obey his word. And let not your hearts be troubled, whether by your sins or the sins of this world, because he who is united to you by faith is greater than the world. He is the conquering king. He is preparing you a place now so that he may bring you to glory forever. He has promised it, and he will do it. Let's pray. Our glorious Lord Christ, we thank you for for showing us your glory and grace in this sordid tale of David. We confess that we are sinners by nature, and we thank you that by your bountiful grace that you have made us your very own, and you have given us your spirit so that we are more and, and more conformed to you. May your spirit lead us, guide us, and turn us toward you in our daily walk. And may we confess our sins to the Father through you, fully expecting your forgiveness and cleansing of our souls. We pray in your name. Amen.